Our Father, so many things this week that are competing for our attention and our focus, and even in this moment, it is easy to have our minds distracted, to be thinking about things that we might be engaged in later this day or tomorrow or the next day. It's easy in this moment to be distracted by desires and longings and wants. It's easy to be distracted by activities, relationships, people, things. And Father, what we need our attention drawn to is Jesus Christ. And so would you take this story, which at the surface level is a tragic story, a difficult story, and would you unfold to us the reality of Christ our Savior, His greatness, and our hope in Him. Would you lead me to speak and cause me to speak with clarity, accuracy, precision? And would you make our hearts to be transformed, not just by the story, but but by the Savior in the story? It is in His name that we pray. Amen. What is your dream of the perfect Christmas? I I want you to actually paint the picture in your mind. Who who are the people who are around you? Where where are you in this perfect Christmas setting? setting? What are you eating? And what gifts are you receiving? And and giving, of course, but, but receiving. What will make the perfect Christmas day? On the first Christmas day and the first Christmas season, few people were thinking about Christmas. It was just another ordinary winter season. It was just another day. It was just another month. It was just another season to get through. There was nothing extraordinary about the time. A few undoubtedly had heard some vague rumors about some strange things that had happened in the town of Bethlehem a few weeks earlier, but it seemed to be just that, some really strange rumors about angels and and shepherds, and a baby, and Messiah, and it just seemed too far-fetched to be true. It, it really, frankly, just seemed to be a few stories of some untrustworthy shepherds. You know you can't trust the shepherds, do you, don't you? That, that they just are completely unreliable. They are known for telling untruths. They're, they're known for stretching reality. And this just seems to be another instance that that's the case. And then... Some wealthy men from Babylon show up in Bethlehem to visit Joseph and Mary and the baby. How bizarre was that? That, that they would not only travel so far from, from Babylon to Israel, but, but that they would come to the humble village of Bethlehem and not just come to Bethlehem, but they, they only came to see one family, one of the, one of the weakest, one of the, the smallest, one of the most insignificant families in the village. And why would they come and see them? That's weird. And then, just as suddenly as they came, they disappeared. Nobody saw them leave. They were just in the middle of the night. They were gone. And and at the same time, Mary and Joseph and the baby disappeared. And, and where did they go off to? Well, they had a hint of it when the next day, or shortly thereafter, 
soldiers from Herod came and invaded the village and went into houses and grabbed ruthlessly babies under the age of two, all male babies under the age of two, and mercilessly, brutally, savagely killed them. We do well to remember that for everything else grand and glorious and spectacular that happened that first Christmas, it was also a time that was covered in sorrow. The dreams and longings and desires of many families were seemingly crushed when Jesus arrived. His birth was declared with joy by the angels and affirmed by the shepherds and attested in the temple. But it was also greeted with tears of immense grief. When Jesus Christ came, He came to the sound of Christmas sorrows. Where was the hope for those who endured such tragic loss those days? And where is our hope when we experience loss, when, when we come to this season or any day burdened and carrying the weight of loss and longing and grief and sorrow, where's our hope? Is there any hope to be had? It is through the story of the slaughter of the babies in Matthew two thirteen to 23 that the apostle reminds us that our hope is that Jesus is the greatest king. In this passage, we, we actually have contrasted two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. One seems to have all the power. One seems to have no power. But in Matthew's revelation from God, we find that Jesus is not just a king, not just a great king. He is the greatest king. And it is in this story that we see that greatness. Jesus is the greatest king. The question is, how is Jesus the greatest king? He starts answering that question for us in verse 13 when he says that Jesus has a greater authority. Jesus has a greater authority. It is tempting when we come to to Christmas to avoid the hard parts about it. We're tempted to limit our guest list to the people who are easy for us to entertain. We're, We're tempted to give gifts to those who will receive them well and maybe reciprocate by giving us gifts as well. We're tempted to look at Christmas lights and attend Christmas concerts rather than go and help those who are underprivileged and unfortunate. We're tempted to avoid reading Matthew two thirteen to 23 and the slaughter of the innocents. Listen to what one pastor says. Our nativity scene is really cheap. The children made it years ago though it seems to get prettier every year. It's from Luke. Straw, a baby, Mary and Joseph, some animals. We have angels, all kinds of angels, all around the house, on the mantle. They're from Luke. All of our decorations are Lucan. We put them away today. Luke is over now, and we go to Matthew. Exit the women, in come the men. Exit the stable, now it's a king's palace. Exit the shepherds, enter the wise men from the east. Exit the angels, and in comes Herod. We have a little music box. It it plays carols, Silent Night, Holy Night, and O Little Town of Bethlehem. Just open the lid and it starts playing. It's on the coffee table. It's Lucan. Music is from Luke. Put the lead down on that because exit Mary and enter Rachel. 
exit lullaby and enter scream. I heard a voice in Rama. It was Rachel weeping for her children. It's just so hard to accept that the gospel has enemies, that good news has enemies, but there it is. Herod intimidated and all Jerusalem troubled. For all of the sorrows that lie at the surface of this story, there are joys that undergird the story as we contemplate the Christ and the Savior who is revealed in this story. And what we're going to see is that Jesus has a greater authority, not just than Herod, but than all men. And we see that authority, first of all, through the angels. We see Jesus' greatness of his authority through the angels. The angels appear in verse 13. This is, this is the third time that the angels have appeared in a vision. Jesus, or Joseph, it had, I talk for a living. Joseph had had that experience of an angel appearing to him in, in uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. And the Magi had had the experience of, of the angels appearing to them in Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. And now, for a third vision, now an angel appears again to Joseph. And we're going to see two more times when angels appear to Joseph. And what is interesting is the responsiveness to the people who, who have angels appear to them. So, Matthew chapter 1, an angel appears to Joseph. Says verse 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. The angel appeared, the angel spoke, Joseph responded in obedience. The Magi responded in the same way. Having been warned, chapter 2, verse 12, in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Immediately, the Magi obey the angels. We're going to see similarly, uh, verse 13, the angel appears to Joseph. Immediately he gets up. In fact, it says that, um, verse 14, that Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother while it was still night and he left for Egypt. Now, can you imagine when Joseph went to sleep that night, he's not thinking, well, in the morning when I wake up, we're going to head out for a trip to Egypt. Egypt was not on his radar. He was not thinking about going to Egypt. He had no plans to go anywhere. The angel appears, he hears the angel, and immediately he gets up. And how much time did he take? I don't know. Maybe an hour to get everything ready to make a permanent move, what is in his mind, a permanent move to Egypt. He, he hears the angel, and he responds immediately. And uh, we see that as well in verses 22 and verse 23. We see that in the story of... of um, uh, Zacharias and Mary when the angels appeared to them. So an angel appears to Zacharias and he says, uh, and Zacharias says, well, I'm just not so sure that what you say can actually happen. Oh, really? Well, let me prove to you that I can do this. And the angel keeps him silent until the baby is, the baby uh, John is born. Mary responds to the angel and she says to him, let it be done. Uh, behold, your bondservant, your slave, Mary. Let it be done to you as the Lord. Let it be done to me as the Lord said. So immediately, there's a response. Why? Why do all these people respond in obedience? Because the Lord is revealing Himself through the words of the angels. Now, as we as we think about revelation, we think about we think about general revelation, right? That 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 the heavens declare the glory of God. So we look at creation and we see something about God. 
But we don't see specificity about God. We don't see the character of God in written word. We don't, we don't hear in, in verbal word the character and the nature of God. We don't, we don't know about the plan of salvation through creation. That takes special revelation. And in special revelation, we hear particular truths that lead us to salvation and understanding who God is. And as we think about special revelation, we think first and foremost about the Word of God, that God has revealed Himself into the Scriptures. But there are other forms of special revelation as well, and that includes auditory speech from God, or God using visions and dreams and angels to speak His truth to those who would hear. And this is exactly what's going on. This is a form of special revelation. And those who heard it, Joseph in particular, responded with immediate obedience. And it's good to, it's good to look at Joseph and say, wow, Joseph, Joseph had the revelation of God and he responded in obedience. And when we have the revelation of God through his word, we need to respond in obedience. That's, that's good. But what I want you to see is not just, not just the obedience of Joseph. I want you to see the authority of the word of God being mediated through the angels. I want you to see the authority of God. I want you to see the authority of Christ being mediated through the angels. Jesus' authority is seen through the appearance of the angels in their revelation. Jesus' authority is also seen through His name and position. As you read as you read the Christmas story, you read in Matthew chapter 1, you read Matthew chapter 2 through the middle of the chapter, and you find Joseph is prominent, you find Herod is prominent, you find the Magi is prominent. Um, you read... Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, you have Zacharias and you have John the Baptist and you have Elizabeth and you have Mary and all of them mentioned by name, Simeon and Anna. You have all of them being mentioned by name in particular ways and repeatedly over and over. But but in the middle of chapter 2, that changes. Did you notice it when I read? The angel says to Joseph, verse 13, get up, take the child and his mother So Joseph, verse 14, got up and took the child and his mother. Verse 20, get up and take the child, in another vision, get up and take the child and his mother. Verse 21, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother. Now, Matthew knew Mary's name. But he never in this account from verses 13 to 23 never mentions her by name. It's as almost as if she's secondary. And in fact, the, the angel no longer comes to Mary. Now the angel is coming to Joseph. Joseph is the head of the ha- family. Joseph is the head of the house. He's the leader. And so, so the angel comes to Joseph as the leader in the home. Mary almost seems to be a secondary thought. In fact, as, as you read this, the account, it's not just that she is mentioned not by name, but only by her position as his mother. But in certain verses, she's not mentioned at all. So verse 13, the end of the verse, he said, the angel says to Joseph, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child. Herod's not interested in Mary. He's interested only in the child. Verse 20, similarly, um, those who sought the child's life are dead. Verse 23, they came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Jesus is preeminent. Mary's off the page. What, what, what does this point to? This points to the fact that the story 
For everything else that's going on, lots of other participants, Joseph, Mary, the angels, the story is about the centrality of Jesus. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is authoritative. Jesus is the one that we want to see. His authority is also seen through his destination. Notice the command. He says in verse 13, You shall take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Why, why go to Egypt? What, 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 what about Egypt was, was particularly compelling? Well, there are some, some natural reasons that, that they might go to Egypt. The, the border was relatively close. The border was about 75 miles away from Bethlehem. So depending on how fast they travel by foot, Two days, three days, maybe four days, and they could be across the border. About a hundred miles past that, um, there was a, 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 a very safe location for them. There, there would be people that would be like-minded uh, as them. In fact, um, the, the historian Philo tells us that there were about a million Jews in Egypt at that particular time, so there would have been brotherhood. Kinship, perhaps they had other family members who were, who were living in Egypt. We don't know, but that's certainly a possibility with a population that large. During the Greek rule over Egypt, Alexander the Great had established a Jewish sanctuary in, in Alexandria, so, so there was a place that the Jews could go and worship. But that's not the reason that the angel gives or that Matthew gives for us to understand why he went to Egypt. Notice verse 15. He remained there until the death of Herod, and this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. He went to Egypt in order to fulfill a prophecy. Now the prophecy is given to us in the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And Hosea says this, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now if you're paying attention to that, Hosea is looking backwards. He's going backwards to the Exodus under Moses. And he's thinking about, about Israel, the Son of God, God's adopted people coming out of Egypt. And in fact, he talks about, about the Exodus multiple times in this book. So chapter 2, verse 15, I will give her, her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a, as a door of hope and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So again, Hosea is looking backwards. He's, he's looking to the time when under Moses, the people of Israel came out of Egypt. And then he'll say something similar in chapter 12, um, verse 9. I, the Lord, have been your God since the land of Egypt. Verse 13. But by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. So over and over, Hosea is emphasizing, I'm looking backwards to what God did in getting you out of Egypt underneath Pharaoh and taking you back to the land of Israel. So the question is, what, what's Matthew doing when he says, this is prophesied that out of Egypt I'll bring my son? Matthew's applying it to the Messiah, but Hosea's looking backwards. So how do, how do those two fit together? Well, Hosea was not knowingly predicting the coming of the Messiah, Jesus' return from Egypt was, was pictured by, by Israel's exodus from Egypt. So, so Egypt and the departure from Egypt is a type 
of the Messiah that is to come. So Hosea didn't know when he wrote that. I'm talking about the Messiah, but but Christ became the antitype of of the nation of Israel as they came out of Israel. Or excuse me, out of Egypt. Just as God brought Israel out of Egypt and keeping his promises to his chosen people, now he's Matthew is telling us that he's also going to bring his son out of Egypt. So God was faithful when Israel was in Egypt all those years ago, and now he will be just as faithful to bring the Messiah out of Israel, out of, out of Egypt. And, and there is a sense in which the Messiah was brought out of Egypt when the uh, Israelites came out of Egypt underneath Moses. Because that protected the Messianic line. The, the Messianic line didn't end and, and fizzle out in Egypt, but because they came back, the, 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 the Messianic line was allowed to flourish and grow and produce the Jesus who would be born from that line. And so there is a sense in which Jesus was coming out of Egypt with the Israelites when he came, when they came out underneath Moses. What I want you to see in this is that God didn't send Christ to Egypt to say, stay there. He sent Christ the Messiah to Egypt to demonstrate his faithfulness to a promise that he made as the covenant God of Israel. And here, my friends, we see again the authority of God, the authority of Christ. Jesus Christ is the unique fulfillment of Scripture. He fulfills the promises of God like no other prophet, like no other king. Herod is a king, but Jesus is the great king, the greatest king. Jesus is also seen through his protection. It has been noted that while God could have used supernatural means to protect Jesus and Mary and Joseph, he used natural means to protect them instead. God God had intervened throughout this story in supernatural means by having angels appear in visions and dreams. But that's the only supernatural thing that's happening in the story. Everything else is natural and normal. There's, there's no instantaneous removal of, jo- of Jesus and Joseph and Mary from Bethlehem to Egypt. Remember the story about Philip as he's talking to the, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8? He finishes talking to him, baptizes him, he gets out of the, out of the water and poof! He's gone and in another location. Well, God could have done that with, with Jesus and Joseph and Mary. He could have just said, uh, by the way, Joseph, get ready, you're on the move to Egypt. Poof! In Egypt. He didn't do that. He could have. There were no protecting angels. Remember what Jesus said uh, from the cross? He said, I could call 12 legion of angels to protect me. Listen, all God would have had to do was send one angel to stand guard at the house of Bethlehem and Herod is not getting in. Jesus is protected. He could have done that. He didn't. He could have hidden Jesus in plain sight. Remember the story about Moses? There's Moses floating around on the river. Nobody knows where Moses is until it's the right time. He could have hidden him in plain sight. He could have, he could have made Jesus to just be elusive. Remember, multiple times, John particularly talks about the fact that, that the Pharisees were trying to kill Jesus and it just says, he eluded their grasp. He, he just, they're coming to kill him. They, 
They kind of jump on the pile as it will to grab him and he just walks away, slips away. Where'd he go? He could have done that as well. He could have sent thwarting plagues like he did in, 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 uh, in Moses' day with the Egyptians. He could have killed Herod. It could have just been, Herod, you're dead. And the threat would be gone. He didn't do that. He didn't even use the Magi to protect Jesus. He could have, he could have said to Joseph in the dream, listen, the Magi are only about a day ahead. You can go quickly and catch up to them. And then the Magi will take you to Babylon. The Magi will protect you from Herod. He didn't do that either. He used very ordinary means. He used the gifts of the Magi to provide for the family on the way to their travel. He provided physical health so they could walk to Egypt. He provided job skills for Joseph that he could support his family while they're there. He used very ordinary, simple means to protect the family. And hear this. In the ordinariness of life, God is still authoritative. It doesn't take, it doesn't take some miraculous intervention into our lives for God to demonstrate that He's authority. No, God is always authority. Even in the simple things, even in the provision of a job, even in the food that's in your refrigerator, even in the simplicity of the relationships you have, even, even in the humility of the cars that you drive, even in the ordinary things and tasks and positions of life, God is demonstrating He's King, He's authority. Jesus is the great King. And what this story does is it reminds us of the authoritative nature of Jesus Christ. The world hates Easter because it's, it's the claim of a resurrected and powerful ruler, right? Jesus is resurrected. He's victorious. He's King. The world is not particularly offended by the story about Christmas. Why? Because it's just a baby. What's intimidating about a baby? There's nothing intimidating about a baby But this story is designed to show us that the baby is authoritative. Herod thinks he's in control. Herod thinks he's ruler. But it's Jesus who is the authority in this story. How is Jesus the greatest king? He is the greatest king because he has a greater authority. And he is greatest king because he offers a greater hope. A greater hope. Isn't it true? The life often seems hopeless. If you read the story, you're going to see hopelessness seemingly in the story. Herod's in this story, throughout this story. It starts back up at the early part of chapter 2. It runs into the beginning of this story in the warning in verse 13. It's, it, it, it reminds us a little bit of the hopefulness that Herod doesn't get the upper hand. Verse 15, he, Joseph, remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. But verse 16, again, here's this interlude about the wickedness of Herod. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, now there's something interesting, right? He was trying to deceive the Magi, right? So verse 7 and 8 calls the Magi, determines from them the exact time the star appeared. He's, he's asking them, I want you to tell me everything about this mysterious appearance of the star. I want you to tell me everything that's going on in, in relation to this baby that's come. I want you to tell me, I want to know everything that you know. 
So he's probing and he's asking, he's figuring out timelines, he's, he's figuring out when the baby might have arrived in relation to when they first got the, the, uh, the star appearing to them and, and when they started to move and when they started to come and he's got the whole Bethlehem fig- thing figured out and he's trying to trick them. And they tricked him instead and when he realizes that, verse 16, he became very enraged. He, he exploded in in this volcano of anger. And the sense is now that he's being controlled by his anger. He's not just he's not just expressing anger, but he is overwhelmed by anger and he is submissive to his anger. In his fear he is blinded to the truth. He is irrational and he is, as the text says, enraged. This is typical about Herod. This is this this is this is the Herod of the day. Um, he had a number of wives. He had, a, we know of at least ten wives, and, and one of those wives was his favorite wife, and he had her killed, and two others of his sons killed simply because he thought they were trying to usurp his throne and, and take over his throne from him. They were plotting against him. On another occasion, he killed two thousand people in a village, and then and then burned that village to the ground. Every building in that village was completely razed. This, this was, this was Herod in his brutality. It was said about Herod that it was better to be his sow than his son. So brutal was he, even to his family. And that brutality is now irrationally expressed against Jesus and Bethlehem. So Herod had queried the, the Magi about the timing of their arrival. He's trying to figure out how old Jesus is. And so he goes to Bethlehem, sends his men to Bethlehem, and he says, I know that Jesus is at least this old. Let's make sure we get him. So we're not just going to say all babies under the age of three months or six months. We want to make sure we get him all baby boys under the age of two. I want that baby. Matthew says he went, excuse me, he sent and slew them. He's irrational, but in his irrationality, he is decisive. He is sudden, and he is ruthless. And if Herod could not find and kill Jesus, he would kill others in his place. And it did not matter to him who it was or how many there were. He was taking him down. At the time, the population of Bethlehem, historians tell us, was likely under about a thousand. So as they figure the demographics and figure out, you know, how many of those people would be in their childbearing years, we figure that there were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 20 babies that were killed on that occasion. Um, not hundreds. I, in fact, read this week again in another blog where someone said there were hundreds of babies killed. No, there, there were maybe hundreds of people living in the village of Bethlehem there were maybe a dozen or perhaps two dozen babies killed on that night, but it's not the quantity of babies killed that makes it horrid. It is abhorrent to us because of what is done 
of the nature of what is carried out in rebellion against God. And this is, in fact, the first overt rebellion against Jesus Christ. It is the, fir- it is the first definitive rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus would later say in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And this is the first definitive instance of the Messiah and the opposition that the Messiah faced. And isn't this the way it always is in the world, that the world is fundamentally opposed to Jesus Christ? And the history of the world is a history of the world's long war against God and against Christ. We don't want Jesus. And that rebellion against God can tempt us to feel hopeless. Life certainly was hopeless, seemed hopeless for those 10 to 20 families. There was no Christmas celebration in those houses. There was wailing and lament and anguish and sleeplessness and hopelessness. There would be no justice for them because of the injustice of the ruler who carried out the action against them. How hopeless can you feel when life seems hopeless? Christ is still full of hope. Herod acted swiftly, decisively, mercilessly, but he had no chance of succeeding. It has been said that the one enthroned in heaven laughs and scoffs at the Herods of this world. We see a hint of the lament of the families in verses 17 and 18. Matthew points to the fact that that what happened to those families was similar to and in fulfillment of what happened, what, what Jeremiah recorded happened in Jeremiah 31 verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet is, is thinking about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar in 605 and 597 and 586 and, and deporting in three different events the nation of Israel to Babylon. He's taken them away in subjection. He's taken away all of their leaders, all of the leadership, the spiritual leadership and the natural leadership in the country is stripped out of the country and taken away. And all of the healthy and vital and strong and wealthy are taken out of the nation of Israel and taken into captivity in Babylon. And Jeremiah says, it's as if Rachel is weeping. Remember the story about Rachel? Um, Jacob's wife, Rachel, she was the one that had trouble bearing children and, and Leah had all the children and, and, and she was having difficulty bearing children. And, and Jeremiah says, it's as if Rachel has finally had her children and now those children are all taken away into captivity. They've been removed from her. She has lost them. And she weeps those tears of anguish and lament and heartache. And, and Matthew applies that to what's going on with these families. There's anguish and loss and grief and sorrow. But Matthew would also have us to remember the rest of Jeremiah 31. So in verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Very next verse, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, 
Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. Jeremiah, excuse me, Matthew wants us to remember the hope that is in, in Jeremiah, even while there's weeping, the story's not over. You're in the middle of the story. You're weeping and you're lamenting and you're grieving. But the final line on the story hasn't been written yet. The final line on the story is, there's hope. And it's coming. Where will hope come from for the nation of Israel? Well, in that same chapter, in Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet writes this, verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That new covenant. So a covenant was promised to Abraham. And then from the promise to Abraham, there's this promise called the new covenant that's made to Jeremiah. That new covenant about the blessing that will come to the nation of Israel and through the nation of Israel to all the other peoples of the earth is centered around Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And when Christ dies and is resurrected, he inaugurates that new covenant and Matthew would have us remember that. That in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the death, there is the hope of the coming of the Messiah who will grant the new covenant that will, that will justify His people and, and impute to them not only His righteousness, but put their law on their hearts, giving them a new heart by which they can respond in faith and obedience to God. My friends, when... When families were grieving in Bethlehem, what they did not know was that now there was real hope for them. That is not to minimize the reality of their grief, but it is to point to the fact and to remind us of the truth that while there is sometimes loss in this world in Christ, there is always a greater joy and a greater glory and a greater hope. Jesus Christ is the greatest king because he offers a greater authority and a greater hope. And thirdly, he gives a greater salvation. He gives a greater salvation. Verse 19, the angel shows back up again. This time he comes to Joseph in Egypt and he says, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Verse 19, at the beginning he noted, Matthew noted, that that Herod was dead. Herod had died a cruel and and difficult death. Josephus tells us, I'll try and clean it up, Josephus is a little bit... um, 
bold in the way he talks about it. But Herod's intestines rotted from the inside out and produced worms that came out of his intestines, producing a foul body and breath odor. I mean, his breath, they said, was just rancid because of what was going on in his intestines. He had kidney dysfunction and difficulty breathing and suffered immense convulsions. They said he died in, in agony. His death likely was in 4 B.C., so Jesus at this time may still have not even been a year old. It may still have been the first year of his life. Herod was dead. His death was horrible. His kingdom was in disorder. He had left instructions that when he died that uh, he had assimilated and gathered a number of the main religious leaders of Egypt and brought them to his palace on some kind of pretense. And then he had all of them imprisoned. And the order was that when he died, all of those men that he gathered would be put to death because he was fearful that when he died, people would rejoice. And he didn't want rejoicing. He wanted weeping. So he wanted to make sure that there would be weeping when he died. In God's grace, those men weren't put to death. But that tells you something about the viciousness of Herod. He changed his will a number of times before he died, murdered his son Antipater, who he thought was going to usurp his throne from against him, left left his rule to his three other sons in a divided kingdom, Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip. And the text tells us that Archelaus got the area of Judea. And Archelaus was virtually as ruthless as Herod was. On one occasion, he shortly after he took the throne from his father, he killed 3,000 worshipers at the temple in, Jude, in uh, Jerusalem. He was, he was a ruthless and evil man. So verse 22, when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, he's afraid to go there. I, I don't want to go there. It would have been natural to go back. He evidently would have, was thinking about going back to Bethlehem. That's where they left from. It made natural sense that that's where they would go back to. Another angel appears, warned by God in a dream, He left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in the city called Nazareth. That was Mary's home before they got married. So it was natural that they would go back there. And then Matthew gives this note. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, if you look through the prophets, you will will not find a statement. He will be called a Nazarene. There's no explicit statement like that. But, But there are statements that Jesus would be despised and forsaken. So, for instance, Isaiah chapter 53, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, no, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him, for He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. He was a despised man and Nazareth, was a despised place. So even one of Jesus' own disciples says in John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? We're going to follow this guy? From Nazareth? Really? If he'd been raised in Jerusalem, he could not have been mocked for his heritage. But he was a despised man. He was a Nazarite. It's, it's, it's pointing to the fact of the uniqueness of Christ and what Christ would come to do. I want you to notice one other thing in this this text. 
Verse 20, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Verse 21, So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. That's a really unusual way to refer to Israel. It is the only time in the New Testament that that phrase, the land of Israel, is used. And as far as I know, it's the only time in all of the scriptures, I can't even find a place in the Old Testament where it's used either. There is one place where there's a similar phrase, Hebrews chapter 11, it says of Abraham, by faith he lived in the land of promise. Abraham lived in the land that was promised to him. I think Matthew and the angel would have us to remember that when God made the promise to Abraham, he made a promise of a land, a seed, and a blessing. And that land is centered in Israel. And when the angel says to Joseph, Take Jesus and Mary and go back to the land, the land of Israel. He's reminding him, I'm a covenant-keeping God. I'm a covenant-making God who will keep His promises to you. And, And it's not just that you will receive the land, but you will receive all of the promises yet that were promised to Abraham. And it's coming through this baby. This baby who provides a greater salvation. This baby who provides salvation. This, this baby who provides redemption and hope. This is, this is the very thing that, that was undoubtedly in Mary's mind when she was singing what she sang in verse 54 and verse 55 of Luke chapter 1, she says, He has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and His descendants forever. This is fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Salvation is coming to us. This is, this is undoubtedly what was in Zacharias mind when he sang the song that he sang, verse 72, to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore, swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. It's, it's, all, it's all a promise that has been made and a promise that is being kept by the Savior. Salvation of Israel and the salvation of all men would come through the despised Nazarene. The irony in the story is that while there were many tears over the murdered babies in Bethlehem that season, in what has been called the murder of the innocents, it took the death some 30 years later to another baby that was born at that time, the only innocent man to provide hope and salvation for those children and their families. And that is exactly what Jesus provides. You see, the story about Jesus is only partly a story about a birth. It's really a story about death. And not just the death of Bethlehem babies, it is a, a, death, a story about the death of the promised Messiah who came to earth, laid aside the privileges of his position in heaven, 
and came to die as a substitute for sinners who would believe and trust in Him for salvation. And my friend, if you are not a Christian this morning, recognize that like Herod, you are a rebel against God and against Christ. And unless you repent, unless you turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ from your salvation, you are hopeless. But if you believe that Jesus Christ, the baby, the Savior, the Messiah, the King, if you believe that He came and died in your place and died to remove the penalty of sin and died to remove the power of sin so that you can follow Him in obedience, then He will save you and you will have life. Would, would you believe in Jesus Christ today? Would you believe in Jesus Christ this Christmas season? There's nothing greater that you can do than trusting and believing in Him. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ already, there is nothing better that you can do than to tell people the good news of the baby who is a crucified and risen Savior. What is your dream of a perfect Christmas? Most likely there will be disappointment with some, some of your dreams and desires. There, there are going to be sorrows attached to the day. There may be loss, illness, grief. There may be loneliness, emptiness, broken relationships. There may be unplanned and unwanted changes to your life situation, financial re- reversals, housing changes, job loss. Christmas and life do not work out quite as easily and simply as the Hallmark movies would have us to think they do. Unless the focus of your day is Jesus Christ. You see, our hope is not in circumstances. Our hope is in a person. The Lord Jesus Christ, who even as a baby demonstrated that He alone is the greatest King. Make Him, make Him the object of your desires this week and you will not be disappointed. Our Father, we thank You for the reminder of the greatness of our King and that He came and that as King He died and as King He was resurrected and as King He is at Your right hand in heaven, even now interceding on our behalf. This is the greatness of Jesus Christ. This is the greatness of Jesus Christ even even when he was a babe, that he was the greatest king. Thank you, Father, for the reminders this morning. Might they compel us in our worship this week, we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.